As we begin our time in God's word together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we've already enjoyed in worship and the ways that you work through uh, song and prayer and scripture reading to encourage us and to build us up. And Lord, as we come to this time of uh, breaking open the bread of life and, and reading and studying deeply from it, Lord, I pray that you would give me the words to say that I might encourage and build up and that you would uh, that you would open the ears and the eyes of those who hear and that they might see the truth of your gospel and that they might believe it and be saved, but that they also might live by it. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, as we continue our study in the Beatitudes. And right now we're on the fifth Beatitude. We've worked our way up to number five. And so we're just going to simply start by reading uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 7 in this fifth Beatitude. And then I want to show, talk to you about the points that I want to make and we'll get into the sermon. So uh, to start, let's read together Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So from this statement, I want you to see two points today. I want you to see the nature of the merciful and the necessity of mercy. The nature of the merciful and the necessity of mercy. So to start with, let's consider the nature of the merciful. So at this point in the Beatitudes, things begin both for the preacher and for those who hear it to get a little tougher. Up until this point, I think it's been fairly easy for us to see that the blessings of the kingdom of God come on the repentant, it comes on the sorrowful, it comes on the humble, and it comes on the seeker. But in verse 7, the Beatitudes seem to take a turn. And this turn moves from what seems like in the previous Beatitudes to be that the blessings of God come on those who know that they can do nothing for their salvation And now it seems to turn to say that those on whom the blessings of the kingdom come should do something. And so it it seems that we are now moving from grace to works. After all, the beatitude seemed to this beatitude seems to say that you will not receive mercy unless you show mercy to others. We could easily read this as a form of works righteousness. As long as I am merciful, then I will be saved. But if I fail to show mercy, then I will lose my salvation and God will stop being merciful to me. And many, especially in the Orthodox and Roman Catholic traditions, read it exactly that way. But to understand this beatitude well, we need to remember a couple of things. First... Remember the interpretive principle that I mentioned earlier from Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon suggests that the Beatitudes are like rungs on a ladder. They're not separate attributes that we have to gin up within ourselves in order to be accepted into the kingdom of God, but rather each Beatitude builds on the previous one. So if we understand the Beatitudes in this way, then we understand that a person who is merciful is first a person who is poor in spirit. A a person who is merciful is first and foremost a person who is broken and repentant over his sin. That same person is also mournful for his own sin and for the impact of sin in the world. That guilt and repentance leads him to be humble and meek. 
It also leads him to yearn for God's righteousness, which he knows he can only have through faith in Jesus Christ. So all of that is true before we ever get to this blessing. We have built up over the last four weeks, we have built up to this blessing by understanding our complete lack and our complete need for God's grace and God's goodness through Jesus Christ. In fact, you could say that the steps up this ladder of the kingdom are a picture of salvation from the conviction of sin to conversion to sanctification and even to resurrection. Second, remember that in a real way, there's a connection between showing mercy and receiving mercy, but we tend to get the cause and effect reversed. I think we tend to think I can do the work of mercy and God will then be merciful to me. But that's not the way the Bible teaches this principle of mercy and the merciful. Rather, you'll notice that when you read scripture, it is that God shows mercy to you and then you are motivated to show mercy to others. It's true that our true mercy and forgiveness can only come from a heart that understands it, a heart that has received it. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, Jesus tells this parable of the unforgiving servant. And he tells of a king that decided to settle his debts with all of his servants. So he calls this one particular servant who owed an immense debt. If you were to calculate how much he owed in today's money, it would be about $35 million. So he owed about $35 million to this king and he could not obviously repay because he's a lowly servant. But the king brings him in and he forgives all of his debt. And the servant is grateful, very obviously. Why wouldn't you be grateful if somebody forgave $35 million in debt in one foul swoop? But when he leaves, he makes a beeline for a fellow servant who owes him money. And this servant owes him, compared to his debt, owes him an insignificant amount of money. In fact, if you calculate it, it's about 600,000 times less than what he owed to the king. The, the other servant owes this man about $600, if you were to figure it in today's money. So the, when this fellow servant couldn't pay, the unforgiving man puts him in prison. Now, when the king hears about this, he calls that unforgiving servant back and he says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? You see, the lesson of this parable is clear. The mercy of God for sinners should change us. It should call us to repentance. It should cause us to yearn for righteousness. It should make us humble. And it should motivate us to show mercy to others. You see, if I believe that God sent His only begotten Son to live the perfect life that I could not live and to die the death that I deserve to save me from eternal damnation in hell, then surely, surely, I can forgive my brother or sister in Christ for an offhanded comment. Surely I can forgive my family member who in my mind has soiled my family name. Surely I can treat my coworker with respect and human dignity. 
Surely I can judge my neighbor not based on the color of his skin, but on his worth as an image bearer of God. So the nature of the merciful is rooted in a right understanding of the mercy that we have in Jesus Christ. So understanding that, let's consider my second point, the necessity of mercy. What is the blessing of mercy that the kingdom of God brings to those who are merciful? So consider three truths about the mercy of God. First, simply put, our God is a merciful God. We see that from the very first page of the book of, uh, of the Bible to the very end of the book of, uh, of the Bible. We see it throughout the Bible that God is a merciful God. In Genesis chapter 3, after God has cursed the, ser- the serpent, the woman, and the man, and it seems like all hope is lost, they've been cast out of the garden, they can't do anything to save themselves, they can't do anything to cover their shame, what does God do next? He takes an animal, he performs a sacrifice of his own, he skins that animal and he uses the skin to cover the shame of the man and the woman. In Genesis chapter 4, after God has cursed Cain for killing his brother Abel, he puts a mark on Cain to protect him and to keep him from the revenge of his family. After the nation of Israel and Judah are defeated and led away into exile, God would show mercy to them by bringing them back and giving them the authority and power to rebuild the temple and the wall. In all of this, the constant witness of the Old Testament is that God is merciful. In fact, there's a common refrain that is said throughout the Old Testament. You find it in Exodus chapter 34 uh, particularly, but it's said in uh, the Psalms and throughout the Old Testament. And it is this. It says that the Lord God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Whenever the Old Testament believers were asked to define who God is, this is the definition they would give. And that definition starts with the fact that God is merciful and gracious. Second, the word for mercy here can also mean compassion. It's not just like the mercy of a king on someone that he can't really understand. Right. He's a, a king lives in high authority and high comfort and having mercy on a servant. It, it might be might seem kind of, you know, uh, pitiful, like he's just having pity on him. Well, mercy is not just pity it's compassion. It's used this way in Hebrews chapter two, verse 17, where it's the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus was made to be like us in every way so that he could be a merciful and gracious high priest. So let that sink in for a moment. Jesus, who according to Philippians chapter 2, is said to be in the very form of God. In other words, he is God himself. He made himself nothing, taking on the human form. And he was made in every way like us. He was made like the lowliest of us. He was born to peasants. He worked a labor-intensive job. He fished and hunted and gathered for his food. He slept on the ground during his ministry. He ate with sinners and tax collectors. 
He gathered the poor and outcasts and rebels to be his disciples. He was unjustly tried, mocked by the aristocrats, punished by his government, and condemned to die on a cross between two criminals. He did all of this so that he might be the priest we need. He did all of this so that he might identify with us in our weakness and the pain and the suffering and the oppression of this sinful world. He did all of this for mercy. He did it so that he might advocate for us before his father in heaven. And because he did all of that without sin, we can know that his father hears him in his advocacy. Finally, the merciful or or the mercifulness that we are to show reflects God's character. Mercifulness reflects God's character. Micah chapter 6 verse 8, as we read at the beginning of our worship, says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Isn't it ironic that so often we allow our sense of justice to get in the way of showing mercy. Because we hate the welfare state, we refuse to care for the poor right in front of us. We claim to value life while throwing a woman and her child who have conceived out of wedlock out on their ear. We say we love all of humanity while threatening to shoot anyone who approaches our door. But love of mercy is the good that God requires of us because God loves mercy himself. Be careful about prioritizing principles over people. Let me say that again. Be careful about prioritizing principles over people. God's laws are meant for our good. They are meant for the good of humanity. They aren't meant to beat people up. They aren't meant to destroy people. They are meant to make people into the good humans they were created to be. So if we value the principles over the people, we are misvaluing God's law. God's law was not made for harm. It was made for good. So may we not use them for harm. Hosea chapter 6 verse 6 says, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now this statement is interesting again because it's counterintuitive to the way we think about sacrifice and worship. In Hosea's day, The priest of Israel carried out the sacrificial rites just like they were required to. They followed every dot and every tittle of the Levitical law in ensuring that they carried out the sacrificial system exactly as it was prescribed in Scripture. And they did all of that while robbing from the poor so that they might live lavish lifestyles. I hope that you see in this that we can carry out all the right actions with respect to worship all while we have a heart that is far from God. 
We can faithfully attend every time the doors are open. We can sing all of our favorite hymns with gusto. We can take sermon notes with veracity. And we can do all of that while having an unforgiving, merciless heart. May we instead have the heart of God and worship faithfully while showing mercy and forgiveness. Our church has been welcoming and faithful in that respect in so many ways. We have been good and, and, and caring and kind, but I hope that we recognize that we are called to mercy even when it is uncomfortable, even when it is unusual, even when it is inconvenient. So instead of scowling at the noise of children, may we praise God for the next generation of our church. Instead of frowning at new faces, may we welcome and disciple new members of our church. Instead of worrying about what might be taken away from the traditions of our church, may we look to the future and look for ways that we might reach the lost in our community in this time and in this place. May we leave this place today showing others the mercy that has been shown to us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the word of God and for the truth of these Beatitudes and for the way they speak to us even today. And they announce the blessings of the kingdom to those who, on whom the kingdom of God is coming. So, Father, I pray that we would be found merciful because we see and receive and recognize the mercy that has been given to us. May we be motivated by mercy to be merciful to others. Father, I pray that that might be the witness of Antioch West Baptist Church. I pray that that might be the witness of every member here, that we are a merciful people. We are a good and kind people. We are a forgiving people. We are a loving people because we know that we serve a good and gracious and kind and merciful God. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.